in week number two of our whirlwind tour through the book of Job. Last week we covered just the first chapter and discussed really a handful of the things that are found in Job 1. This week we increase our speed, we go two chapters, and next week we will finish the end of chapter 7. So we are really going to be picking up speed here. So there is an art to learning, to listen, to preaching, and uh, I hope that you uh, can keep up. There's an art to preaching, and I think that there's, uh, there's a, certainly a discipline to knowing how to, how to follow along. And as I, as I admitted last Sunday, I, I know that there are things that will be missed. We will just not cover absolutely everything that there is to cover. And so I, I encourage you to use these times, especially as we cover multiple chapters, to, you, to you know, read ahead, of course, if you, if you found the, you know where we're going to be, but then go back after Sunday is done and read through it again with, that, with new information, with new light, and then allow the Lord to continue to speak. Tonight we will pick up back in chapter 2 and 3 as we meet, and we will discuss some things that we just certainly don't have time for this morning. In fact, even what we have in the bulletin, I don't, I do not plan to be able to cover it all. Let's read Job. We're just going to read the first six verses as kind of a, of, a, of a beginning, and then we will begin to look at Job's suffering. This is Word of God, Job chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask his blessing as we, st- as we consider it together. Father, we thank you for the words of Scripture. Thank you for the comfort in knowing that these are not man's words about you or to us, but your words of yourself out of the the storehouse of your wisdom for us, your people. They give us life. They sustain us. They nourish us like food. They, They give us insight into so many areas of life that It's astounding the wisdom that is contained within these pages. It is our privilege to have your wisdom and your knowledge in a language that we understand and can read and can absorb as much as we desire. We ask for that holy desire to know more and more of your words and by doing so, know more and more of you. We ask this morning as we look at just a few of them, you would give us understanding, 
give wisdom. As we talk about suffering this morning, it does not escape me that there are, no doubt, several in the room who are going through a bit of suffering that maybe others know of, or maybe it's silent and personal and private. Lord, we ask that as we understand that no man can adequately speak to the needs of even one person, let alone a room full of people, we pray that you would minister to our hearts by your words. Spirit, do your work in us, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a belief within contemporary Christianity that God exists to make all my problems go away. It's really the only purpose that God has for me, to save me, to take me to heaven, take away the problem of hell, and then in the meantime, make sure my life is rosy and cheery. Christopher Ashe, who wrote uh, wrote a very helpful commentary on the book of Job, calls this easy triumphalism. Easy triumphalism. This is a, a belief that Life should be like a Hallmark card or a Disney movie. It's always going to be good. There are never going to be any bad days. The sun is always shining. He calls this version of Christianity shallow, trite, superficial, happy clappy. He says this kind of Christianity would have had Jesus singing a chorus at the grave of Lazarus. There's no room for hurt. There's no room for pain. No room for suffering in this version of Christianity. But this version of Christianity is not real life, is it? You've lived long enough, you know life is painful. Life has its moments of grief. Life has full of sorrow and full of suffering. So either we can pretend that life is painless and without its suffering, or at the first sign of trouble, we will run to God and expect Him to provide some miracle to take it all away. If you will admit that Christianity is not a life free of suffering, you must also ask yourself the question, at the first sign of pain, what do you do? Not going to in any way Today, it discourages you from running to the Lord. But as we run to the Lord, are we expecting God to do something, fix, make the pain stop? Good health and prosperity are not God's will for all Christians. Not in this life, at least. The philosophy that is behind this easy triumphalism makes human happiness its highest object. That is the most important thing. It's a view that leads us to expect God to shield us from unhappiness and unpleasantness, and then is thereby is false, because it causes us to lose sight of the role of pain in our sanctification. Closer to real life are the first lines of Fame, uh, rather, it's, it's kind of an older song now, I guess, but it's a more contemporary song. Mark Hall wrote the words to praise you in the storm, and he begins the, the song by saying, I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down, wiped our tears away, 
stepped in and saved the day. Once again, I say amen. It's still raining. Isn't that more often what life is like? We have a problem. We go to the Lord fully convinced that He could take it away. He could fix it. We get off our knees and the problem is still there. And the next day, and the next day, and the days turn into months, and months turn into years, and things have not changed, or perhaps they even get worse. We don't have to look too far, too hard to find people who know that that kind of a life is all too real. They might be sitting among us. You might be one of us right now. You've put on a smile. You've put on that brave face. You have learned to deal with whatever it is that you have to deal with, but you are certainly dealing with pain, suffering. Well, the end of Job 1, if you've never read the story of Job, then you may look at the end of Job 1 and, and, and see it as kind of a, a sad and unfortunate story, but a satisfactory end. I mean, Job is, is a great man. Job is a, a good man. Job has lost nearly everything that we would hold dear in life. And yet, by the end of the chapter, Job manages to get back to his feet figuratively and bless God. He manages to worship God in his trial. And this would be an appropriate way to end the story for many of us. Somehow Job manages to build a new life, live a new normal, move on, end of story. But then chapter 2 opens up with yet another day. We saw this twice in chapter 1, there was a day, there was a day, and chapter 2 begins the same way, another day. Once again, Satan presents himself before God. Once again, God brings up Job's name and remarks that he has held fast to God. If you were to compare the words in, in the beginning of chapter 2 to what God said of Job earlier in chapter 1, you'll find that they're nearly the exact same words. The story almost plays out exactly as it did. And, and then God adds in verse number 3 this little line there, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. God is surely commending the integrity and the faith of Job. But Satan is still not convinced. Job is who God thinks he is. And Satan believes that if, if God would just tighten those screws a little bit further, Job would crack under the pressure. And curse God to his face. This time, Satan asserts that Job is only remaining loyal to you, God, because he is not, you've not affected it so personally. In fact, what, what, what we read there just a moment ago, Satan believes that Job has somehow accepted the loss of his wealth and his children and, 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 and in, a, in a morbid way exchanged them for his own life, saying, you know, better them than me. And, and Satan really is, 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 is showing his cards here that he believes that, that the most prized possession of man is his own personal life. And if God were to touch his own body and put his health and safety at risk, Job certainly would turn against him. 
Sure, Satan concedes that some will remain loyal to God uh, in the loss of wealth and possessions, but no one will stand with God when it costs them their life. So God removes the hedge once again, allows Satan to afflict Job's body. The only caveat there that he must spare his life. Job, too, is here to remind us that God is not primarily interested in removing all of the pain and displeasure in our lives. certainly wasn't concerned about that for Job. He's the one who brought up Job's name twice. He's the one who admitted that he was destroying Job without reason. Sometimes God adds to the pain instead of taking it away. Sometimes God wills that we remain in our suffering with an indefinite period of time. There's no indication that it will end. And we as the people who are living this life and maybe the ones experience the suffering want to believe that something good is about to happen to you. Old phrase that's really hollow in Job's ears. Tell that to Job. Something good is about to happen to you, Job. Oh, something worse is about to happen to you, Job. It's going to last quite a while. And if we want to believe that the Christian life is only full of joy and only full of happiness, sunshine, and zero pain and zero heartache, Job 2, Job 3, quickly bring us back to reality. We think that God has only planned good things for us in life. Job 2 and Job 3 quickly squash that notion. So this morning, we're going to look at suffering. We're going to look at Job's suffering, which is really the theme of the entire book. And yet, it's not a pleasant topic, but a very real and, and applicable topic, I think, as we get into it. We'll consider it in, from, two, from two angles. First, we'll look at the depth of Job's suffering, and then we'll look at the effect of Job's suffering, namely in the loneliness that it brings, in the new perspective that it brings, and in the questions that it brings. If you'll look at chapter 2 and verse number 7, and as I mentioned before, we will not be able to hit every single verse just for sake of time, but we'll try to cover as much as we can in the time allotted, and then I trust that you'll go back and be able to fill in the cracks as needed. Look first at the, the depth of suffering or the complexity of Job's suffering. It wasn't just one part. It was multifaceted in verse number 7 there of Job chapter 2. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. It's an interesting disease that Job has been afflicted with. Many Bible scholars have tried to put it into more modern medical terms to help us to really get a pinpoint idea of what it was that Job was suffering from. Listen to how Job himself describes it throughout the book of Job. In chapter 2, we see as we've read, there's painful itchiness. There's disfiguration, sleeplessness, worm-infected sores that scab over and crack and ooze, nightmares, choking, gaunt red face, swollen red eyes from weeping, shadowy frame, 
weight loss, bad breath, fever with chills, burning fever, gnawing pain throughout his body, rotting bones, burning bones, darkened and shriveled skin. This is, this is quite the mess that Job is in. And it all happened at once. This is deep suffering. And this is not just physical suffering. Of course, Job was suffering long before chapter 2 when the, the, the loss of everything occurs in a moment of time. Go back and read Job 1 and you see that Job lost his, his, his servants. And if, and if Job is anything the way that I imagine him to be, he had a good, he was a good employer. And he, and those of you who have, uh, co-workers or people that work for you underneath you, you know that, that you can, you can develop long, deep relationships with them. And those men are gone except four who are the messengers of this bad news. He's lost his wealth. It was just measured in his livestock. He's lost his children. And any one of those things could really drop a man to his knees. And Job has lost all of them in one day. And, Still, that's not enough. Now, his personal health and safety is at risk. He's, he's covered with boils. Some, sometimes it's, it's, it's easier for us to, to, to just try to imagine it as one thing, but really, I, I don't think we're doing it justice to describe Job as covered in boils or Job as a leper. Because there's so many things that affected him, not just physically now, but then as we go into chapter 3 and as we get into the rest of the book, we find out that it's now moved from physical suffering to emotional suffering. And Job is dealing with, 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 with suffering in his thoughts, and he's dealing with suffering in the way he feels, and, and suffering the way his body is as well. And this is just a, a deep, complex level of suffering. But notice that also... The, the, the depth of his suffering goes into this sense of meaninglessness. Now think about what God said about Job in, in verse 3 of chapter 2. God knew that Job was blameless because God said it twice. God said he's a blameless and an upright man. He fears me. He turns from evil. And he says in verse number 3 there, I am destroying him without cause. God is saying I'm doing this and he isn't deserving of this. I'm not chastising him for sin. I'm not disciplining him for some evil that he's done. I'm doing it without cause. And Job himself knows this. That word destroy there, it, it, it means to swallow up. Job is, Job is being swallowed up by God. He's being consumed by God in every which way he can imagine. God knew he was innocent and Job himself knows he was innocent as we'll get into chapter 3, and that'll be his big question. Why is this happening? Surely if I had done something wrong and, and something of which I needed to repent, I would do it, but I can't think of anything. Job chapter 4, the first time his friends start talking to him, that'll be their first thing. Uh, the, the, is anybody really innocent before God? Surely you've done something, and Job will say, show me what I've done wrong. I'll repent of it. I'll, I didn't do anything. I'm, I'm blameless. This is meaningless suffering. One said, coping with the sense of meaninglessness is more difficult than coping with the material losses. Surely if you knew that you'd done something, you deserved it, it would, you'd be able to process through it. But when you realize that nothing, I didn't do this, to, I didn't do anything to deserve this, that makes it even more difficult, doesn't it? Notice then the extent of his suffering. 
Because there's no end in sight for Job. Things go from bad to worse and there's no timeline given to us. We know the end of the story, but put yourself in Job's shoes. Put yourself in Job's wife's shoes. How long is this going to last? When will this end? Every bad thing that you could imagine to happen to a person has happened to Job, except death. It's the one thing that Job will wish for when we get to chapter 3, to make it all go away, to make it all stop, and yet it's almost as if he's had every bad thing happen and then put the pause on, and he's being suspended, kept alive, but being tortured. Some have described it as being awake for your own open-heart surgery. This is what Job is dealing with. But notice the, 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 the contrast between chapter 2 and verse 6 where God says, He's in your hand, Satan, but only spare his life. And then if we skip ahead to chapter the end of chapter 3 and verse 20, the theme of the last few verses of chapter 3 are, why can't I die? Just let me die. Later on, he'll say, God, leave me alone. Just let me die. That would be the mercy that you would show to me as to let me get away from all of this. Let me rest in the grave. And it seems to be the one thing he can't get. Job's suffering here will testify to the sustaining grace of God and the supreme worth of the glory of God. Because as we said last week, the glory of God matters more. And if Job were to simply just die away, does the psalmist say, can the dead praise you? And so Job must remain alive so that he can retain his integrity so that he can continue to suffer for the glory of God and give him praise in his suffering. This will then be the ultimate test of faith. The question that we're asking as we read through this, if we're not jumping ahead, is how strong is the faith that God supplies? Will Job be able to make it? Look at the effects of suffering. We see, first of all, the effects of his suffering is loneliness. No, not physically alone. Job certainly feels abandoned by everybody. His wife comes to him in uh, verse number 9 there. He's sitting in the ashes, and many would say that, that, that he was sitting outside of the city. He was sitting on the, the garbage dump where he would find all of the ashes and the broken pottery to scrape his body and, and find just a moment of relief before it returns to him and torments his body again. Cast cast out of society. No one is around him. Nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to, 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 to look at that while they're trying to enjoy their backyard view and to see Job next door suffering and no doubt crying and wailing and scraping himself and, and the physical ugliness of Job's suffering. You can imagine Job is sitting out all alone and finally his wife comes to him in verse number 9. And before we throw too much blame on her, remind you that Job's wife lost ten children. And Job's wife lost wealth. And Job's wife lost everything up to this point except her own health. But she is suffering because she's watching her husband suffer. And if you're married to one or you have children, you know that there is a different kind of suffering to watch someone else that you love go through something that you can't stop and you can't fix and you can't make better. And that's tough. And certainly it's not the same suffering as that person, but it's certainly suffering nonetheless. 
And maybe in an act of, of defeated faith, maybe it's an act of, of, of frustration, she tells Job, curse God and die. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Recognizing that the integrity of Job is what's prolonging this. Thinking that, Job, if you would just give it up, give up the integrity, go ahead and curse God, throw in the towel, give in, cave in, and die, and it can all be over. It's funny that the the thing that God commended Job for, his integrity, is the thing that his wife questions. It's not worth it anymore, Job. And I really begin to see this as more of Satan's strategy. This isn't just a happy coincidence that Job's wife is compounding his suffering, making him feel all alone. There's no one really in his corner at this point to say, Job, just hang in there. We don't know what God is doing, but hang in there. His wife says, we're on the towel. It's done. Be done with this. He tells her there, though, that you speak as a foolish woman. I like what he says in verse 10. Shall we only receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? Does God only give good things? If we're so happy to receive the good from God, should we not also be willing to receive the bad that He brings? And to notice, just in case that we are wondering, Scripture reminds us that in all this, Job did not sin. Job was suffering. Job is going through the ringer like no one has gone before. But he did not sin. And now we see his friends come. It seems to be a good moment in his life. I mean, imagine three friends coming from far away. We don't really know where, where all of these places were in relocation to us and, and, and who these guys were much. But we do know that here they come and they've made an appointment to come and to sympathize with him and to comfort him. And when they see him, they don't even recognize him. He's emaciated. His, his, his whole face has changed. Not just from the boils, but from the way that the toll of suffering has on a person. And they see him and they say, this is our friend. I've never seen anybody go through something quite like this. And it breaks them. And they weep. They tear their garments. They scatter ashes on their head. And then they sit. Silence. For seven days, they sit with Job. And that sounds good. It sounds like good friends. It won't take long, though, for their mouths to open. They will not be offering comfort. They will distance themselves from Him. With their words, surely, You've done something. We will find very, very soon that they will not be with Job. Truly, Job is alone. But then notice in chapter 3, as we get to chapter 3, what the perspective suffering brings. This is really the first time that we've seen Job really say anything more than just a verse. He's only spoken, I think, three times before this. All good things. But then Job opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. Curses his own birthday. Can you imagine how frustrated a person must be to curse 
their birthday. Listen to some of what he says. Verse two, verse three. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. At night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Job simply could have said, wish I'd never been born, but he says it in poetry. So we do well to read through that and allow the emotion to gush forth. Job, having sat in silence for seven days with no one talking to him, maybe the custom was to wait for Job, I don't know, but Job is certainly ready to talk. He's ready to express his frustration and his grief and his lament and his mourning and everything that's going on and the whole jumble of emotions that are in him now gush out and it comes out first as cursing. Wishing that the day of his birth would somehow be wiped off of the calendar, that there would be no more August 14th or whatever day it was. That it would just skip a day because that day meant that he was entered into this world and that day meant that he would live to the day he is at now and experience the suffering like he's never known. And then he laments, and for ten verses he curses his birthday, and then for another eight or nine verses he laments his own childhood. And look at verse 11 there. Listen to the questions that he asks. And, and if, you're, if you count it up, I think it's like 13 times he, he basically wishes his birthday would be removed. And depending on how you're looking at it, it'll either say let it or, 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 or may it, uh, let gloom and deep darkness or may gloom and deep darkness come upon him. You'll find like 13 times he'll wish that his birthday was just disappeared and gone forever. Then verse 11, he begins to ask, why? Why? He'll say, why didn't I die at birth? Why didn't I die when I came out of the womb? Just right then and there. Regardless of the pain and suffering that it would put his parents through to lose a child at birth. He's saying it would be better for everybody, for me. I'd have just died. Why did the knees receive me? Why didn't I, why didn't I, uh, why didn't my mother just abandon me? He's talking about the, the, the nursing aspect and, and the fact that, that his mother and, and, and father would take care of him and why didn't they just abandon me? Or better yet, why wasn't I stillborn? In verse number, uh, going down into verse number uh, 16 there, why, why wasn't I just born, dead in the womb? It would have been better for me all the way around if I had just never existed. Suffering has changed his perspective on the past. Think about what Job is doing by cursing his day and cursing the day of his birth and cursing the willing that nothing would have ever happened because Job is saying, and I'm not expecting Job to speak rationally here, okay? But listen to what Job is saying. All of the good that has ever happened in my life is not worth it. And I would throw away all of the good that ever happened to me up to this point. Let's say Job was 50 years old at this point. For the last 50 years, every good thing that's happened to me altogether does not come close to making it worth the suffering I'm going through right now. I'd get rid of it all. I'd get rid of the happiness of knowing my mother and father. I'd get rid of the joys of knowing my own wife. I'd get rid of the joys of having children. I'd get rid of the joys that life that God has blessed me, but it was not worth it. Just throw it all away so that I can be at rest. 
because this suffering is pain and torture. Notice that suffering has changed his perspective on death, too. Say, on the future. Because as he looks forward, he doesn't see any hope. He looks ahead and sees nothing but more of the same. And he longs for death, thinking that death is the only thing that will bring him peace. Look at verse 13. Then I would have laid down and been quiet. I would have slept. I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Or look down at, uh, skip down to verse 17 there. There the wicked cease, and he's talking about in the grave. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. Small and the greater there, and the slave is free from his master. He's, he's assuming that in the grave, there is nothing but peace and rest. And compared to the life he has right at this moment, it's better to be dead. Job is not longing for heaven. Job is not referring to, I want to go and be with the Lord and get rid of this suffering as a believer in the New Testament age might say today. He is saying, I just want to go to the grave. I just want to be dead. I just don't want to be alive anymore because it's not worth it. And if you read through this and allow it to, to speak in the way that Job would have said it, there's, there's emotion here. There's, there's pain dripping from his words. Grave doesn't truly bring rest to all, though, does it? The thing that we fear most in life, dying, is the one thing Job wishes he could have because he believes now that it brings rest to everybody. It's changed his whole outlook. Because truly, death does not bring rest to all. The, the old saying that would be said when someone is dead, rest in peace. It's not true for everybody, is it? Because the Scriptures do teach of judgment, hellfire. Judgment and damnation and condemnation. Job is not thinking about that. He's just thinking about his present circumstances. And that's what suffering has done to him. And then finally, we see Job's questions. More questions. Why? Verse 20, why is light given to him who's in misery? And life to the bitter in soul who long for death, but it comes not. Who dig for it as for hidden treasures. Think about what he's saying there. Why do I keep waking up in the morning? He's now moved on from thinking about the past and thinking more about his present and saying, why do I keep waking up? Why can't I just go to sleep one day and not wake up? Why doesn't this consume me? Why doesn't this completely finish me off? It's taken me to the brink of death. Why won't it just push me off the edge? I am like one who is searching for death as if it was hidden treasure. Digging for it. Why, in verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? God has hedged him in, he feels. This hedge was, was, was used already. And, and the hedge before was, was, was protection, chapter 1. But now the hedge of protection feels like a prison. And he feels God is, 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 is I'm his enemy somehow, and, and God is opposing me. Why is God doing this to me? Why is God against me? Listen to what he says at the end. I, the thing I fear comes upon me. What I dread befalls me. I'm not at ease. Nor am I quiet. I have no rest. Trouble comes. Can't, there's, no, there's, no, there's no joy here. There's no hope. There's no looking ahead to a brighter day. Now, if you've ever read this chapter before, 
probably find it uncomfortable. What do you do with a chapter like this? Certainly this is not given to us for our instruction. This is not like a psalm. Pray like this. Certainly we are not saying that we should be cursing our day and wishing for death. So what do we do with a chapter like this? Well, I think that if you've ever gone through pain and suffering like Job, deep down, there's kind of relief. I know we shouldn't feel this way, but I'm glad someone said it. I know that these are the wrong things to say, but I've been there. I know what this is like. Maybe that's you. So what do we do? I have several things there, and we'll look at just the first one, and then we'll save the rest for tonight. This is the primary one. Know then, in your suffering, if you're in it now, or you're going to be in it later, one or the other, or both, you're going to suffer in this life if you're, if you're going to live for God. And whether or not you live in a broken world, you're going to experience pain and suffering. So here's the hope. Know that if you are in Christ, God is for you. Because here's, here's what Job is, is experiencing right now. God is against me. That's what he feels like. And you must know, be for certain, that in your suffering, God is for you. That's why we read from Romans 8 this morning, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It doesn't matter what else is happening. God is for us. And God, unbeknownst to Job, God was using Job to prove that His people recognize His worth as God. Job is the shadow of another who suffered innocently was all alone, abandoned by all who knew him. In his moment of grief, asked, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Christ is not just blameless like Job, he's sinless. Christ was not just the greatest man in the East, Christ is the greatest in the world of all time. And yet, the prophet Isaiah says, surely He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. He has put Him to grief. Out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You don't get anything out of Job 2 and 3, but this, this this is it. When we feel abandoned by God in our moment of suffering, or in our years of suffering, or in a lifetime of pain and suffering, when you feel abandoned by God, You can look to Christ who was forsaken so that we might never be. That's the the, the teaching of Romans 8, 31-39 there, that Christ has brought us closer. Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus, before He left in Matthew 28, said, I am with you always. That's what Emmanuel means. God is with us. 
God has not abandoned you. If you are in Christ, God is for you. God is with you. The reality and the inevitability of our suffering make it so important for us to have this proper view of God. God is both sovereign and good. He is trustworthy. And he is faithful. And he sees us, cares for us, loves us. He's not forsaken us or abandoned us in our suffering. And that none of this is meaningless. Though we don't know why, why we suffer, we don't know when it will end, we can trust in God and in His divine plans. We just read the words from Paul. We'll finish. Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, we are afflicted in every way. Not crushed, perplexed, not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And he goes on to say a little later, so we don't lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. Day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary. The things that are unseen are eternal. God is for us. He is with us. Let's pray.